Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Hello once again sports fans and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we examine the best of sports history one week at a time. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and this week is our Black History Month edition of the show which we will talk about one of the most important NBA Finals ever played which will be the subject of this week's main event. Also the top five which will feature a college football program receiving the death penalty from the NCAA as well as an end of an era in Dallas, and an event that is a backdrop for a current popular movie. So sit back, relax, and pop in those earbuds, and let's rock. And now, this week's main event. Hello and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm Dana Augusta and now this week's main event. And this week's main event brings us back to 1975 and the NBA Finals that year between the Golden State Warriors and the Washington Bullets. Now this final series would become one of the most significant finals ever as well as one of the most important moments in sports history. This would mark the first time that two teams playing for a league championship in any major sport would be led by black head coaches. The Golden State Warriors were led from the sidelines by Coach Al Adels, who was a former player who played for the last Warriors team to reach the finals, which was in 1967. On the other sideline was Casey Jones, yet another former player who had an illustrious career with the Boston Celtics winning eight NBA championships as a player and now trying to win one as a coach with the Bullets, following in the footsteps of his former teammate and not only with the Celtics but with the University of San Francisco and that would be of course Bill Russell. Washington would enter the playoff that year with a 60-22 and record which was tied with the Celtics for the best record in the, in the NBA. Yet Boston would have home court advantage in the Eastern Conference because they had the home that the season uh, tiebreaker that year over the Bullets. Meanwhile, out west, Golden State claimed the number one seed despite having a very modest 48 and 34 regular season mark for the 1974-75 season. Golden State was led by Hall of Famer Rick Barry and as well as a rookie forward by the name of Keith Wilkes 
later known as Jamal Wilkes, as you change his name as you with the as you star player with the Lakers in the early '80s. But he began his career with the Golden State Warriors and was also and also Golden State was anchored at center by Clifford Ray, who came to the Warriors via a trade that sent longtime center and Hall of Famer Nate Thurman to the Chicago Bulls. And of course, as luck would have it. The two top teams in the Western Conference that year was Golden State and Chicago, and they would meet for the NBA, for the right to go to the finals that year in the Western Conference Finals. The Bulls and Warriors were battling out for a hard-fought, physically demanding seven-game series in which the Warriors would end up knocking off the Bulls in seven to reach the finals for the first time since 1967. Meanwhile, in the Eastern Conference, the Bullets led by Hall of Famers Wes Unseld and Elvin Hayes, slipped past the very game Buffalo Braves led by Bob McAdoo in seven games to face the Celtics in a de facto NBA Finals as both teams finished the season that year with matching 60-22 and 22 records. When it was all over, the Bullets would get past the Celtics in six games and enter the Finals looking to redeem themselves from losing in a sweep to Oscar Robertson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and the Milwaukee Bucks in 1971. The Bullets and Warriors would square off for the NBA Finals with two black head coaches, making the matchups very unique to say the least, but no less important. Yet also, the 1975 NBA Finals would also be one of the most unusual finals ever. Due to a scheduling conflict with the Oakland Coliseum, the Warriors would be relegated to play their home games of the finals in Daly City, California in an arena called the Cow Palace, their first home before moving into the Oakland Coliseum in the mid-1960s. To add more intrigue to the finals, the Cow Palace was already booked for Memorial Day weekend rodeo, which forced the NBA to install a very strange 1-2-2-1-1 finals format, meaning Game 1 would be in Washington, while Games 2 and 3 would be scheduled in California. The Bullets would host Games 4 and 5, while Games 6 and 7 would alternate between the Cow Palace and Landover, Maryland, between the Cow Palace and the Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland, the Bullets' home arena. When the series started in Game 1 in the Capitol Center in Landover, the Bullets would explode out to an early 14-point lead and would lead by double digits by halftime. Yet the Warriors would rally thanks to reserve guard Phil Smith, contributing with 20 points off the bench, leading the Warriors to a 101-95 win and wrestling home court advantage away from Washington. A couple days later, Game 2 would take place in the Cow Palace in suburban San Francisco. Washington would jump out to an early lead, yet behind Rick Barry's 36 points, Golden State would rally by rally by the Warriors in the late stages of the fourth quarter, and the Warriors held a, actually a one-point lead with seconds remaining. Washington would have two shots at the basket as time ran out, and Warriors would hold on to a 92-91 win to extend their lead two games to none. In Game 3, Golden State would lead throughout. Rick Barry led all scores with 38, and the Warriors would win again 109-101, excuse me, taking the commanding three games to none lead in the finals with a return to Metro D.C. for Games 4 and 5. 
the key to the Warriors' success that that year in the finals would be the would be the play of Rick Barry, and also the defensive effort of rookie Jamal Wilkes. Wilkes used to playing in key moments uh, as a star of several UCLA championship teams in college. Wilkes led the All-Star Alvin Hayes in check, limiting the Bullet Star to only 28 points in the first three games of the series. Also, the play of the Warriors' reserve was also crucial, as the Warriors' Golden, as Golden State's bench outscored Washington's reserves 115-53 to to this point in the finals. Returning to the Capitol Center in Maryland, Washington, playing like a team with their backs to the wall, exploded out to a 14-point lead in the first quarter. The game's turning point, however, came late in the first quarter when Rick Barry was fouled hard by Bullets guard Mike Reardon. Barry attempted to go after Reardon, but Coach Adel stormed the court to go after Reardon himself and was ejected for the altercation. The Warriors would have to play the rest of the game without their head coach. The Bullets would control the game until the middle of the fourth when the Warriors began to make one final run. Down by eight points, the Warriors connected at several connected with several clutch shots while the Bullets made several uncharacteristic and unforced turnovers with, with time running out and the Warriors down by one. Butch Beard was fouled and would hit two crucial free throws to give the Warriors a 96-95 lead. On their last possession, the Warriors would force another turnover, giving the ball back to Golden State where they would run out the clock and claim their third championship in franchise history. With Rick Barry's performance, he was named Finals Most Valuable Player, scoring a shade under 30 points per game, while Coach Adels was the second African-American coach behind Bill Russell to coach a team to a championship and the first one as a coach exclusively. Bill Russell actually was a player coach for the Celtics in the late 60s. For Washington, the loss was a disappointing one, but the Bullets continued to be a major force in the league throughout the rest of the decade of the 70s. Three years later, the Bullets would finally get their lone NBA championship, outlasting the Supersonics in seven games in 1978. Casey Jones, who coached the Bullets, would get two more championship rings as a coach of the Celtics, leading his former team to titles in 1984 and in 1986. Coach Casey Jones and Al Adels made history and broke barriers in the NBA sidelines during the 1975 Finals. And that was this week's main event. Hello and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And don't forget, folks, that we are part of the Sports History Network, which features a lot of different shows and with a lot of very talented podcasters, including the show Hello Old Sports, hosted by the Newman Brothers, Andrew and Dan Newman. So whenever you get a chance, man, check them out. They talk about a lot of different interesting tidbits in sports history, and they have a, a very, very good rapport, of course, as brothers. So uh, get in uh, give them a listen uh, whenever you get a chance to check out podcasts on our network here at the Sports History Network. And now, this week's top five will take a look at the events in 
interesting notes that took place during the week of February 21st through February the 27th throughout history. And number five is Pete Maravich. Pistol Pete Maravich scores a career-high 68 points against the New York Knicks at the Louisiana Superdome in 1977. Pete Maravich in the state of Louisiana, which of course is where I'm from, is synonymous with basketball excellence in that state. It's because, you know, LSU's a home arena thing, the Pete Maravich Assembly Center, so that gives you an idea of how important and how big Pete Maravich really was, not only to LSU, but to the sport of basketball in the state of Louisiana. And that night in the Superdome, I just added to his legendary status in the state of Louisiana. He came into New Orleans with the Jazz in 1974 when they were just an expansion team. And the years in New Orleans, the Jazz, for, to lack of, for lack of a better term, struggled. Uh, they were one of, the, one of the highlights of the Jazz stay in New Orleans before they moved to Salt Lake City after the 1979 season. Came that, that night in 1977 when Pistol dropped 68 points on the Knicks. And he did this without a three-point line. 68 points in the Jazz 104 to 107 win against Earl Monroe and the New and the New York Knicks. Number four, the in 1987, the NCAA imposes what will forever be known as the death penalty to Southern Methodist University. SMU was banned from playing the entire 1987 regular season due to rampant recruiting violations and paying players. And it was the subject of ESPN's 30 for 30 in their episode called Pony Excess. If you haven't seen this, take a look at it. It is very interesting. And that was during the time when I first started watching uh, college football. This was back in the mid-80s. I was in junior high when that happened. So I remember vividly what happened and what went down during that, during that whole investigation with SMU. It set the program back a number of years. In fact, SMU would not have another winning season for close to 20 years, and it would be 25 years before they would even play in a bowl game. So that just lets you know how drastic the death penalty was and how far it set that program back for years and years and years to come. Number three, Cassius Clay defeats Sonny Liston for the heavyweight title in 1964 in Miami Beach, Florida. Clay, who would later change his name to Muhammad Ali, wins the fight when Liston failed to come out of the corner in the seventh round. This event also was the backdrop for the recent movie, One Night in Miami. So that was one historical night, not only sports-wise, but it was the backdrop of a movie that's currently out right now. So if you haven't checked, haven't checked that movie out, please check it out. This is a very, very good movie. Number two, Tom Landry fired as head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. For the longest time, when you thought of the Dallas Cowboys, the first person you thought of was the man with the hat on the sidelines. In 1989, during this week, Tom Landry, the iconic figure of the team with the star on the helmet, was unceremoniously fired by the Cowboys staff led by Jerry Jones. Landry, who built the Cowboys from a very humble expansion team to America's team in 29 seasons, was fired during this week, and he was the synonymous figure, not only for the Cowboys, but throughout the NFL. His exploits, including five Super Bowl appearances and two world championships, 
doing his 29-year tenure with the Dallas Cowboys. And number one, doing this week in history was the U.S. Olympic hockey team defeating the Soviet Union and capturing the gold medal in the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, forever known as the Miracle on Ice. The U.S. Olympic team had pulled off one of the biggest upsets in Olympic history by beating the Soviet Union, who had beat them earlier in a couple of weeks before the Olympics started, I think by a score of like 11-1 to 1 in Madison Square Garden. But the U.S. team would have their revenge, again, playing on home ice, playing on play at Lake Placid, New York, and defeating one of the most powerful Soviet Union Army teams ever. Actually, the game was actually the semifinals, which is one of the biggest misconceptions about that game. But after their, after their win against the Soviet Union, which was 4-3, to three, by the way, they would actually have to play Finland for the gold medal, which they ended up winning 4-2 to two a couple of days later to win their gold medal. So that was this week's top five. And to close out the show, it would be this week's shout-outs. And to close out tonight, uh, this week's show will be this week's shout outs. And the first one goes out to former longtime manager Casey Stengel. This week in 1934, the longtime player and manager was named the head man of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Then uh, Stengel would go on to win nine world championships with the New York Yankees later on in his career. And he is listed as actually the only person ever to wear the uniform of all four New York baseball teams, the Giants as a player, the Dodgers as a player and a manager, the Yankees and the New York Mets as manager. So that's pretty cool uh, career milestone for Casey Stengel. Another shout-out goes to Ollie Matson and the Los Angeles Rams. This week in 1959, Madsen, one of the first black running backs to be just gain superstar status in the National Football League, was traded to the Rams for nine players from the Chicago Cardinals. Another shout out goes to the 1960 Olympic hockey team, which was basically the original miracle on ice, knocking off once again the Soviet Union for the first time ever, 20 years before the actual miracle on ice, but this time it was during the 1960 Winter Olympics in Squaw Valley, California. Another shout out goes to Babe Ruth, who was replaced, who was uh, actually released by the New York Yankees this week in 1935. Soon after he was released, he would be picked up by the Boston Braves to, and to actually end his career with the Braves a couple of seasons later. And finally, our last shout-out goes to Hall of Fame baseball man Ted Williams, who was named manager of the Washington Senators this week in 1969. Williams, who was named, who he would later be named American League Manager of the Year that very same year he was hired by the Senators, with an 86-76 and 76 mark turning that team around from a perennial doormat to at least a contender that year. 
And Williams would manage the team through the 1972 season right after they left D.C. to become the Texas Rangers. So that would conclude this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And I really, really enjoyed the fact that you were along with me on this week's journey through the through the, the headlines and different doings of sports history throughout this week in sports history. And remember that you can find us on Twitter at the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast web uh web page, I mean Twitter page, which is historically SP2. And you can get daily nuggets and of sports history whenever you get to whenever you hit up my Twitter page. So until next time, you guys have a good sports week. So long. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.